Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yes. Hey there. This is Carol Jerkinson Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I am so glad to be with you. Now, let me tell you one of the reasons that I am so glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you because right now, appears that anxiety is high. Not only are people worried about their spouses, what they're doing, what they could do, what they will do, but they're also worried about the coronavirus. And so, okay, I'm a life coach and a mental health therapist, and I'm here to tell you, stop. There is no reason to worry about things that haven't happened. So first of all, let's talk about coronavirus. You know, if you're washing your hands and you are keeping yourself out of high germaphobe areas, you're doing fine. This virus was probably at the same all-time high last year and the year before, and the year before, but we didn't know it because nobody was testing for it. You can't do anything about that other than take care of your own personal self. So have some hand sanitizer and please wash your hands, but other than that, you're probably going to be just fine. Stop worrying about what could happen to you and pay attention to what is before you. Okay, well, let's put it this way. Now, you're thinking, if I'm a betrayed partner, let me just tell you, Carol, my life has fallen apart, and there are so many things that could be happening to me right now. Well, the truth of the matter is, if you're a betrayed partner, 
you've discovered what's going on and you are so much smarter. You know. And as a result, when you know better, you do better. So now you know what to do and not do. Now, why would I say that? Well, I don't want to be cavalier. I mean, I really get that this is a crisis. You had no idea. But I do want to tell you that you've educated yourself. And you know where your power lies. And you know what your boundaries are. So pay attention to them and move forward. And tell yourself, you know what? If my life, as I well know it, falls apart, here's what I believe to be true. I believe that I can take care of myself. I believe that I will take care of myself and my family. Because that is the truth. There is nothing you can't handle. Now, if you're a sex addict, wow. If you're a sex addict and you have been discovered and you are in good recovery, I mean, you're going to the meetings, you're following through, you're holding yourself accountable, you have fellowship around you, then I want to say to you, please, that when you do the right thing, and Lord knows you've been doing the wrong thing, but when you do the right thing, it pays off. doesn't mean you get what you want, but it reaps positive dividends. So as a sex addict, I want to say to you, if you're in integrity, life will begin to work in your direction. Okay. Now, I hope that I'm helping you as individuals or couples know that although this is catastrophic, I know it is, also is something that we can work through together. That's who I am. That's why I'm here. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through it together. Now, I got an email from a woman named Caitlin. And Caitlin says, Carol, I am so sad that I married my husband. And I see how very little intimacy we had. He shamed my emotions. And he left me damaged. And I am so so full of anger and resentment. Now, I want to forgive and release this, but I also just want him to disappear. Been married for 46 years. We've been separated for 20 months. He's still acting out to fantasy and masturbation. Maybe not often, but it's present, and he doesn't see that this really affects all the areas of his life and mine. I don't love him and can't ever imagine being physical with him. Can you talk about forgiveness and grief and give me some hope of a better life? I have a lot of trauma in my background, including from my husband twice before we even married. I'm angry, Carol. Please help me get rid of this anger. Help me to forgive. Okay, Caitlin, here's what I say. 
say that you, it sounds like you've had a very bad marriage. You know, I mean, one of those empty marriages where you just kind of existed together. I mean, you've been married for so long, and yet you say, I want him to disappear. And you've been separated for so many months, and you say he's still acting out to fantasy and masturbation. So here is the truth. You know, as a partner-sensitive therapist, you can do whatever you want. That is your decision based on whatever the two of you have got going on in the relationship. I mean, I don't know how much you talk. I don't know how much you're together. I know you're separated, but I don't know what the interaction is. But you say, please help you to forgive. Interesting, because let's say 1921, late 1921, I'm going to have written a book about forgiveness. And the truth of the matter is, in this book on forgiveness, I say you don't have to forgive. Sometimes things that have happened to you are unforgivable. There is this other process, and it's about surrender. Surrendering to what happened to you and making the choice to move on with your life. Not to forget and not to forgive. Now, truly, in this book that I'm writing, I do believe in forgiveness if that's what you want to do. But it sounds like you've had a very tough relationship. And it sounds like he may be really improved, but he's not working a full 100% program. Because if he's masturbating, and if he's fantasizing, you know, you don't need pornography to know that fantasy is not going to get you where you want to be to be clean. And so i got to tell you, Caitlin, prognosis is poor. And by that I mean the chances of you two working this out is very slim. Is there hope? Of course there's hope. But you've been separated a long time, and you said out of your own mouth, that you didn't have any intimacy, that you're sad, that he shamed your emotions, and you're full of anger and resentment. Okay, what do we do next? Caitlin, so many of the partners that I work with realize that to truly embrace their own life, they have to make it their own life. And so if you're not ready to let go of your husband, that's okay. But what can you do to make your life your own? To find happiness in your own life. Sex addicts and partners, if you're looking for more happiness, then I'm going to give you a three-part formula for that. And it is, one, live for today. You know, that's what the program advocates. It says one day at a time. Two, gratitude. Have gratitude for what is working in your life. So, Caitlin, I would say, okay, this man has made a disaster of your life, but hey, 
You're responsible for your life too. So what is working? And write down those things so that you remind yourself, well, I've got my health. And that's fantastic. And I have two out of three kids that love me. She didn't say that. I'm making this up now. And I love that. I have a decent paying job. It's not the job I would pick, but it is decent in that I can count on it and the insurance and the um, disability and the um, dental and eye care. You get the drift. And then do you have some friends? Because, Caitlin, you need friends. Just like the sex addict needs fellowship, you need fellowship. And if your fellowship is going to be, Caitlin, part of a community of betrayed partners, that's great. But I don't want them to be too negative. I want you to find some happiness in your own life, which means, Caitlin, I want you to know what your own post-traumatic growth is. I don't want you staying stuck in what happened to you. I want you to move forward. I want you to move forward in many, many ways. And that's why tonight I'm interviewing Ken Wells, who has written the book, Dare to be Average, Finding Brilliance in the Commonplace. And I sought him out because I said, you know, we need to talk more about how do you find happiness, comma, brilliance, comma, and, and a serenity when things around us don't look so great. He calls it in the commonplace. So now he explains how embracing average in life impacts the recovery life of an addict. And I would agree, as well as I would say, also in the life of a partner. So he's going to be talking about how to have an open heart, how to go deep into your own life so that you can find your brilliance. And he believes that you can transform the experience of shame into the personal brilliance of compassion. And, you know, Patrick Karn said to me way back, when addicts are able to work into a good recovery program and stabilize, help them find their legacy. Help them find the many things they do that contribute to their own life. So I am so happy to be interviewing Ken Wells, who just wrote this book. He has a couple of blogs. We're going to find out all about it. Hey, Ken, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hey, Carol. Good Good to hear your voice tonight. Um, glad to be on your program. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, I did. I sought you out because I'm a life coach and a mental health therapist. And your book speaks volumes to people that just, you know, they almost feel stagnant by their own circumstance. And your book takes them further. You ask them to look at it in a different way. So I'm going to ask you, Ken, in terms of the book, Can you share with me, why did you decide to write a book about being average? Well, yes, I can. The the real reason is because um, we're all average and we struggle with this reality. It's the truth. Um, 
it shows up in everybody's life. And uh, I, I think this, uh, my, my experience is that this, this word average is a word that's oh, so easily uh, is intimidating. Uh, you know, when I think about the word failure, uh, it's a feared word in our culture, yet uh, I've, I've learned, too, that the idea of being average, this fear of being average is common, you know, and um, people are afraid of it. And because a lot of times in our culture, you know, uh, the word's often used as a tool for evaluation or assessing, comparing. Uh, you know, if, if we think about it, um, there's this intense aversion uh, to being ordinary or to being average. I remember being graded in school, and it wasn't in terms of how well I did so much as it was more in relationship to how well or how badly uh, everyone else did. So the key would be to avoid uh, being average. We use the word to judge uh, people, uh, whether they're good, uh, whether good enough, and, and it becomes this way to separate uh, me from the masses uh, and, 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 and to identify with those who excel. So I just understood that people think about average as not being good enough. I've learned that that's not really the case because if you took average um, – and you looked at it from a context of the experiences of life that are common to us all versus an evaluative tool. Uh, I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. I'm just in the middle of the masses rather than if we looked at it from the context of what are the common thread experiences that we all experience through life and how can we uh, work with that context so that, uh, we can actually use it to help us to connect with and work through issues. There's this guy, he's well-known, of course, Aaron Rodgers, who's a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And he made this interesting statement. He said, you know, I've been to the bottom and I've been to the top, and peace comes from somewhere else. Uh, peace comes from uh, uncovering uh, these enriched moments in everyday life average spaces and places in life, and it's not in the spectacular. Most of us look to the spectacular uh, in order for us um, to find our brilliance. But I discovered that really, Carol, it's, 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 it goes this way. It's um, life-giving insult, or insights uh, come not from spectacular places, but these humble places and spaces in our life uh, that are filled with dread, fear, and loneliness. And, and, and these are average places uh, that when we all engage, uh, we all face these in one way or the other. And I have learned that to be able to embrace these experiences in life is actually the stuff of life where we can work through and find our own personal brilliance. So that's the reason I wanted to write a book like that, is to talk to us about what connects us all, whether we're super successful, uh, super wealthy, very poor, what's the common stuff of life uh, that we all try to gloss over? And those are those average, uh, non-spectacular experiences of life like failure, like struggle, uh, uh, feelings that we try to avoid. Uh, we try to gloss over depression. We try to gloss over loneliness. And yet in those 
experiences is the very seed of finding the brilliance that can make a difference in our lives. So I want to write a book about it. Well, and I love that. And, you know, we live in such a technological society where everybody is comparing themselves to everybody else. And I don't mean to be negative about Facebook, but I call it fake truly. We look at that and everybody looks so happy and they're doing all these things and they look like they're living a life of brilliance. And yet what I know to be true is that we all are pretty much the same and we're all pretty normal and we can all spin our lives in a great way, but it's the people that don't feel good about themselves, the people that feel average that don't recognize that there is brilliance in average. And, and so I know you're going to be talking about that today. Surely. So I, I think, I think we have to work with the word brilliant and where we find it. Um, Okay. In our world, uh, it's, most often, it's most often reserved for people who have a high IQ, and uh, those who are people who are combined need to have a high IQ or, or they combine it with physical talent and a lot of intellectual capacity. And for sure, that, that fits. Uh, but there's other places that the example of brilliance can exist in the world that goes unnoticed. Now, here's an example. I live out here in Arizona. Uh, we have the saguaro cactus. Now, the saguaro, uh, what it does, it opens up and begins to do photosynthesis, which is making its own food at nighttime. It does so because uh, in the daytime, it would, it would have all of its water zapped out of its plant. So it waits till the nighttime to do so. Now, that's an unknown uh, sense of brilliance of that plant that people just, uh, that it just goes unnoticed. But if you take a look at other places, you'll find it in the human experience, too. So here's an example. Um, the other day I, I sat and listened to uh, a homeless wanderer, if you will, a homeless guy, and he was describing how he was able to survive and keep warm in the wintertime and then how he survived the desert's hot night uh, in the summer. So when I listened to him talk and go through a lot of the things that I would never even think about, I thought to myself, now that person's brilliant. He's just brilliant in a different way than what many people in our culture identify as brilliant. And then if you think about recovery life, Carol, uh, it has its own depth of brilliance. Uh, if, if you think about the question, how does an addict with a harrowing story of destructive behavior turn his life around by simply attending a small group meeting of addicts who read a big book about 12 steps to recovery, without brilliance being present in that setting. Any of us who have gone to 12-step uh, meetings would know that that's brilliant uh, to, be able to, uh, to be able to sit and, and transform that piece. And then you'd never think that a brilliance would be found in a beginner or brokenness or, or some banal existence. But if you take time, again, a beginner is not uh, – he doesn't show up in a meeting – uh, with with uh, conceit, rather he shows up with humility, and he he needs to be coachable, and that fosters a spirit that helps that beginner begin to creatively access uh, his resources and live a sober life. I find that when I work with clients who are addicts, I find that to be pretty amazing, pretty brilliant, and certainly this whole context of brokenness, 
I mean, those are the things we try to avoid is a broken life. And yet addiction spawns brokenness. And for, for a person who's going through that kind of experience, it's, it's very important that they work with the reality of brokenness. Now, in the Tao Te Ching, uh, they underscore the importance of this. There's a statement there in the Tao Te Ching that says, uh, the hard and stiff will be broken, but the soft and subtle will prevail. Uh, it's really what it's saying to us is that uh, in recovery, by summoning my courage not to resist, a way that's new and opening up my heart and my feet. Uh, I just open myself up to a new way of living. And I, I discovered that there's a lot of brilliance in this awareness that only the people who are broken can really find operational. And then you have to consider the everyday experience uh, of, of addiction recovery. There's suffering, there's struggle in the non-spectacular, you might even call in the boring places of life that we want to quickly over, kind of gloss over. I find that in those places, that's where people find uh, a way uh, to listen to their heart and to transform their life and to find their own personal brilliance. I've always said to people that, hey, look, um, who I am, who you are, is an unrepeatable miracle of the universe. And I don't know of any better example of that than to watch the brilliance that comes forth when people embrace their average commonplace experience and work with it so they can become and find their own brilliance to resolution of this out-of-control behavior. Mm-hmm. Does that make well, sense? Well, Ken, and I would Oh, absolutely. And I would encourage our listening audience to think right now about their own brilliance. And if they find themselves saying, oh, that isn't me, then you just didn't listen to what Ken had to say. He found brilliance in a homeless man that was able to keep, he was able to survive. And so I'm going to ask everybody to think about one way that you are brilliant. Now, Ken, I got to tell you, um, I've run over 2,000 groups, and my colleague and I that did the 2,000 groups together, we had to pick words for each other, and her word for me was brilliant. So initially, I went brilliant. I am so not brilliant because, of course, I thought bright, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm okay, but I'm not a, a super intellectual. But what I knew she was saying was that I was able to look at life in a way that created brilliance, and that was my gift to the world. Now, you have been through a lot. I mean, tell our listening audience a little bit about your journey and how you got involved with sexual addiction and being a certified sexual addiction therapist, and you know Patrick Carnes personally. Just give us a little bit of uh, information about that. Well, okay. Well, uh, what's most important to me is that I know what it's like to be average. When I was a kid, uh, I mean, I, I always thought when I went through school that if you made a C, that's pretty good. I mean, that means you got to go to the next uh, grade. That means nobody hassled you. Didn't have to stay. I didn't have to stay uh, over um, 
uh, after school uh, to do homework. I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, but these days, you know, particularly in the area of time where uh, for some people a, an A minus means an F, uh, these days C's mean something you shouldn't be very proud of. But I was a C student through, through high school. When I say that, I mean 2.0. I went to college. Uh, I, I was a 2.2 student. I had a, 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 an advisor who told me, hey, Wells, what you are is you're, you're going to be a typical nine-to-fiver, so just get used to it. Uh, and rather than discourage me, I used it to be something that really uh, motivated me. Uh, and there are times looking back upon reflection, I wish he were right, <laughs> that I was a typical nine-to-fiver. But the, the reality is this, is uh, the, to be more to keep from being less took its way in lots of uh, expressions in my life. One is become a, work, a workaholic. Uh, two is I've been, I, I got, I, I became addicted to sex. And so uh, I've been in recovery from sexual addiction for over 30 years. And what I've learned about sexual addiction is that I've had to learn to come to grips with my own human average experience in life. And lean into that experience, the experience of emptiness that comes from addiction, uh, the experience of frustration, that uh, uh, of what do I do when I fail? How do I manage myself? How do I bring myself back to center? And the only way I've learned to do that is to find my brilliance through embracing average struggle and work through the feelings of brokenness in order to have uh, long-term sobriety, which I've been working with now for over 30 years. So my experience uh, was way back. I got involved with Ralph Earl here at the, uh, at, at um, uh, the Psychological Counseling Services. I've worked with Ralph now for 27 years. Um, I worked with Pat uh, and Ralph in a group called the Interfaith Sexual Trauma Institute where we uh, made uh, advisements and support toward the Catholic Church and uh, their horrible dilemma of uh, clergy sex abuse did that for ten years, um, and then of course I worked with with the uh, ITAC uh, way back in the in, in the beginning days when we created um, the, the CSAT format. Uh, I I worked with the original board uh, back in the late '90s and the 2000s. So I've been around, been kind of kind of kind of an older geezer uh, in the field, and um, I I found. A combination of this exploding insight that's helped make a difference in the lives of clients. At the same time, I discovered the secret of peace and brilliance that's rich that comes from addressing average, everyday struggle that includes boredom, that includes uh, this intense emotional pain, learning to lean into it and learning to make something really meaningful out of it. Here's something I, I would tell you. Um, every time I go back home to visit, I have family who live in East Central Illinois. So I fly into St. Louis. We take the 270 around St. Louis, cross the Mississippi River. And then there's another bridge for a canal uh, for barges to tra- traverse through so they avoid the chain of rocks there in the Mississippi River. Now I notice that 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 I've noticed that barge traffic. I watch it because uh, the canal itself is just wide enough for that barge 
to go through. It's not two-way traffic. Uh, and it's plenty deep so, that, so there's no getting stuck. I've thought about that canal many times about my recovery. I am good and solid when I come to grip with what's average, which is my limitations, my boundaries. I only get in trouble when I bash boundaries. So what I've learned is this, is that if I go deep, I can go as deep as I want to go within. And therein is where I not only found peace, I find brilliance in order to intervene and manage a successful, sober life. So I wanted to share those things with you. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I believe that it gives you extra credibility because people have difficulty believing that their um, commonplace, their average sense of self really is something to believe in. And so I know that you believe there's this open heart versus a closed heart. And I wondered if you could share with our audience how the open heart versus closed heart also embraces the average impact of someone who has an addiction or doesn't. Well, you see, it's the only way I'm going to heal, whether I'm an addict or I'm a partner. It's a, it's a very, it takes a very courageous act to open my heart. Uh, an open heart is porous. It's real. Um, it's the most necessary thing that's needed to forge my own brilliance. It connects with the present moment and extracts meaningfulness from every common day experience. Now, a closed heart, people tend to rivet their focus on outcomes. It's what they do, you know. Uh, life becomes about winning or losing which becomes like a zero-sum mentality. And what it is this, is when I open my heart and allow myself to be vulnerable, allow myself to be real, it's the only way that I can create healing from any addiction or from any tragic um, betrayal. Now, it's difficult because when I've been hurt, it's what do I want to do? I want to close up. I don't want to open up and become emotionally naked uh, because when I was so, I got hurt. And so it makes sense to step back and set boundaries. But I've never known any kind of dynamic around sexual addiction and it's acting out in betrayal where there's not a traumatization that happens for the partner and for the addict. Yet I've never heard an addict tell a story that he's not traumatizing himself. And the only way I know to help that addict heal is to open his heart, her heart, uh, to the brokenness of addiction. And it's the same way with a partner. Uh, That partner will have to learn how to open their heart and courageously, not necessarily accept the partner, the the, the offending one, uh, the uh, the addict, but I've got to open my heart to the brokenness I've experienced when my heart is broken. So that's what I would say about uh, the value of an open heart. It's really important. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And clearly, when you have an open heart, you're much more likely to go deep into your own personal brilliance by virtue of what you feel is average. So can you tell us what 
does it mean to go in order to create that personal brilliance? Well, going deep means a lot of things. One, um, I, I have to dare to be vulnerable. Um, I have to acknowledge what other people may think is a weakness within me. Uh, I have to take a risk. I have to show my insights. And, it, and we're all the same. See, we're talking about addiction in one sense, but who, who escapes being vulnerable except those who choose to be very, very lonely? Uh, I've got to be willing to courageously open my heart and let people see what's on the inside and be real and stay with it. And that's hard to find. Uh, there are a lot of things to get in the way of that, you know. Uh, I think we, 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 have this, uh, we, we have this attitude that there's a zero-sum living. And that means that, you know, there are, there are winners and there are losers, and we just want to make sure we're not one of those. And so I certainly don't want to tell you anything uh, that would make you think I'm a loser. So I hide from that, um, you know, and, and, and that winner versus loser, it always fuels a lot of uh, gross, grotesque experiences of life. That's where we get us and them. That's where uh, people can become so greedy or where if I can't have it, then neither can you. I call that a crab mentality. Um, and I think, I think uh, there's a lot of things that take us away uh, from going deep. Uh, we, we develop a rule breakers mentality where we think we're special and we think we deserve special rules. I mean, all addicts have a rule breakers mentality. Um, we, 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 we are egotistical. Um, we take up way too much space. I like to think of it like in my office, I have an exercise ball and I like to think that when, when an addict is there, um, I tell him, I say, look, you know, what's your addiction is like if I could take this exercise ball and blow it up, your family would be all smashed up against the wall because you want what you want when you want it. I mean, these things get in the way big time uh, from going deep. But to go deep means I have to be vulnerable to, uh, to, to my weakness and take risk. I have to sit in the silent places of my life and let them speak to me. See, a lot of people, when, when, when we're – we go through betrayal and heartache. Uh, the last thing I want to feel is the first thing I, I, is my reality, and that's I feel depressed. I feel anxious. And I would always, I always tell clients, Carol, that, look, um, if you can work with depression, the first thing to do, rather than just uh, medication to avoid being depressed, I'd like for you to listen to that depression. Let it be, as it were, the voice of God talking to you about what's out of balance in your life. Where do you need to address and take care of yourself? Uh, anxiety is the same way. Our feelings can tell us a lot if we just will but ask, uh, for, ask for, for, for our feelings to talk to ourselves and just listen to that, if you will. So there are a lot of things to do. And the other thing I, I, I really encourage people in order, in order to go deep is I ask them to learn to grieve deeply and to do it well. And by that, I mean most of us don't learn how to grieve, and we're not comfortable with it. We need to go back and grieve some of the hurts that took place when we were children. We need to be able to grieve the awful loss of, of, of commitment and closeness uh, in our lives uh, through betrayal. Uh, but we need to accept the reality that grieving is an adult experience 
throughout all of life. It doesn't have to dominate us. It's not the only experience we have. But most of us want to grieve, hurry up and get down with it and move on. And I've not found that 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 that, that I, when we do that, we blunt the possibility of finding your own personal brilliance. Yeah, I'm not I sure that makes sense. Absolutely does. And so remind our listening audience, because obviously you just wrote this book. I, I can tell that you wrote the book because you wanted people to to recognize their own strength. It's dare to be average, finding brilliance in the commonplace. And you have this blog called Velvet Steel where you talk at least twice a week on addiction recovery. So tell us a little bit about that blog. um, It's simply a a concept that I came up with, like people do blogs, and I've been encouraged to write one for a long time, and I decided, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll write this blog. The concept of Velvet Steel is an absolutely critical piece uh, that I like to talk about because I don't think people do recovery uh, at all very well, no matter which side we're dealing with, whether I've been victimized or I'm a victimizer. Uh, either way, and most of us are, are both, we've been victimized, we've victimized other people. Uh, I'm not going to do well in recovery if I don't learn how to be gentle with myself where I need to be. I don't know of anybody, Carol, who beats themselves up to a better place. That just doesn't happen. At the other side of the coin, we have to be steel. We have to be firm. We have to hold our feet to the fire where we need to uh, do the next right thing. So it's a combination, and I find it to be an art form. It's that type of thing where to be gentle where I need to be gentle and steel where I need to be steel, firm where I need to be firm, Typically, as an addict, I get it reversed. I'm, I'm, I'm steel where I need to be gentle and gentle where I need to be steel. And that just keeps us in, 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 in a relapse mode. And so I write a, a blog about relapse. Uh, I, one of my more recent ones was about gray zones, about trying to help people identify um, uh, in my high-risk zones uh, how do I manage them effectively when people uh, consider, some people consider my high-risk zone acting out while other people think, well, maybe it's not. How do I learn to be true to myself? So I write about those matters. I write about brilliance. I write about uh, how uh, people can um, use affirmations uh, to work through shame. Uh, so that's a little bit about the blog that I do. And uh, it goes out, I don't know, five, I think it's about 10,000 poke it goes out. So uh, I do that. Yeah, and people love blogs. Now, Ken, tell us how they can get your book, Dare to the Average, Finding Brilliance in the Commonplace. Yeah, yeah it can be found, picked up um, through Amazon. Uh, and that's simply the way it is. You, you, you can also purchase, you can get it through Kindle. Or you can also get it through uh, a printed copy. Uh, I think it's for eighteen ninety five. You can buy it through uh, our our office. We have a little bookstore in our office, and people uh, buy books there as well. So uh, that would be important in that regard. I, I, okay, you know, and one, tell them tell them how to get to your office. Oh yeah, well, we're we're in Scottsdale, uh, and so. Uh, 
where where you get it um, is that uh, you, you just simply call the office at 480-947-5739. Uh, that is our office. And can you tell us sure. how to get to your website to buy the book? Yes. Um, our website is TCSRO. I'm trying to think. I, I don't have that in front of me. Yeah, it, it's. Okay. I think if you just call okay. the call the office number, and that's the best way to get it. <laughs> I don't know what our what our TCS website is, but if you go on at Google and, and, and Google TCS, uh, we come up. Okay, and so that it stands for TCS stands for professional. Psychological Counseling Services. And I got to tell you, we love them because um, I've been working in sex addiction since about 2005, but I'm also a partner-sensitive clinical specialist, and you all have adopted that model that we have. And so, you know, it's like you're very uh, comprehensive in terms of your treating the addict, the partner, and the coupleship. So really admire your um, organization and certainly Earl my goodness he is he older than Patrick Carnes uh well I, what do I say yes he is uh I, I thought years. so they're close buddies <laughs> Ralph and I mean Ralph they have practice. been buddies forever for quite a while they're amazing right. uh, yeah, been together for 45 years We've been in practice here for 45 years. So uh, uh, folks in our smaller world of sexual addiction uh, know about us. Uh, we offer an intensive that's uh, pretty comprehensive. It's a uh, 63-hour intensive in eight days. So people do come. Uh, we've done it for many, many years. Um, and that's really important. Let me say this to you before uh, we get too far down the road. Shame is an absolute important dynamic for addicts uh, to manage, or they'll never be able to embrace brilliance from average experience. And so I think it's so important, Carol, for people to understand uh, how to manage shame. Uh, shame is a critical piece for those who, 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 are, who are struggling. And, and I just think this, if I can say this to you real, real briefly, is, yeah. Some people say, some people try to talk about shame. They try to say, well, goodness, um, I just want to be, I just want it to be reduced. We get caught up with identifying is there healthy shame, is there unhealthy shame, and uh, you know, there's there, there's a there's a discussion around that. Um, there's a discussion of delineating guilt or shame. I I want to help addicts. I want to help people in general to understand how to manage shame, because I don't know of anybody who doesn't wrestle with shame. And so what I've learned about it is that if I can help people understand that the, the property of shame, it's like acid in a battery. And if I keep the acid in the battery, it helps me start my car. If I direct the shame appropriately, it, it, because of who we are as uh, resilient people, we can change that shame the compassion, I'll show you how. Because what happens is that if I put the shame 
if I put the acid on my hands, it'll burn me. If I put the shame on my personhood, it scars and mars. But if I took the behavior uh, and I took it to the hurt, if I took the shame and, and put it on the hurtful behavior and just sit with that reality of hurt and pain, I can transform that shame into healing compassion. The other side, there's another flow of shame, and that is I must give it back to the original person who gave it to me. Because when I ask people what's the message, and they'll tell me uh, things like, well, the message of shame is telling me uh, that uh, I'm not good enough. Yeah, I don't measure up. Life's overwhelming. I can't cope. Who gave you that message before you ever experienced uh, this action of shame? And it always comes back to a family of origin member. Uh, And so to practice giving that back and learning how to ignore the critical voice that tells me that I don't measure up, that tells me uh, that I'm flawed and, 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 and a mistake, to be able to learn to ignore that voice is a conditioning and a training that we all have to learn. And we can learn that by focusing on positive affirmation uh, and, 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 and not waiting to feel differently, but to act. And so there's a whole training process that I hope people will consider uh, in terms of managing shame effectively. Because if, if an addict doesn't learn how to manage shame effectively, long-term sobriety will remain elusive. Well, that's that interesting that you would say, that, oh, 100%. And, you know, that's why we're always doing shows on shame because we don't want recovery to be elusive. We want it to be manageable. And and so if you would, Ken, in one sentence or maybe three, the best way to combat or deal with shame is blank. The best way to deal with shame is first to recognize it and its message and its voice to give it back to the original source and then to practice positive action and affirmation. And and see, it's, it's, it's that piece that makes a huge difference. Is, is, is when I allow myself to practice positive affirmation, positive action, and learn to ignore the voice. It's like that movie, Beautiful Mind, when uh, in that movie where Nash is saying to these people, look, uh, I can stand here and receive this award because I've learned to ignore the voices. And his problem with schizophrenia, those who have watched the movie, Schizophrenic are not the only people who hear voices, addicts do too. And I'm not talking about a paranoia. I'm talking about this critical voice that, that is relentless. And I, I can learn to ignore that voice and practice, just like an athlete would practice uh, a skill set. It, it, this is a skill set that we learn to practice on an ongoing basis. So that's what I would tell you about James. Yeah, I absolutely it, it, love that. That is so doable. It is doable. 
it takes practice. And see, here's here's the problem: is we go to our EMDRs, we do we do our somatic experiences, our psychodramas, and and, and there's such a, 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 many times there's such a, an elation and a breakthrough experience, euphoric almost, for some people for some time. Uh, but the truth of it is, what what it will take is ongoing practice, so that not if, but when I drift from center, rather than beat myself up, I learn through practice and training just to bring myself back. That that's it's 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 so critically important that we learn uh, to bring ourselves back and and not to wallow in 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 this thing called shame. There, there's a there's a woman who, uh, who, I, who I find really helpful. And Pema Chodron talks a lot about uh, that context. I, I reference her in, in my writing. But basically, I love her. it's just knowing. Yeah, you know, she, she talks a lot about how, um, you know, that, that my unconditional confidence is grounded in being able to go down and know that I can come back up. Uh, and it's not like that means the results are going to be heavenly or wonderful or we're going to live life happy ever after. But it's just that I know when I go down, I can come back up. And that's, that's something that an addict must um, uh, create within his own self in order to be able uh, to, to live long term and, and, and to be able to have sobriety, uh, to know how to drift from center and bring oneself back. That is absolutely uh, critical for any addict in that regard. So anyway, I, I wanted to share that piece. And you know, to, to, oh, yeah. to, to kind of and one of the that things stuff. that I love that you do the mindfulness thing because let's face it, that's the key to feeling settled and feeling comfortable with being ordinary and knowing our brilliance. Wouldn't you agree? But, no, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. When you talk about couples, uh, there's, such a, there's such a challenge. There's a mirroring that takes place in an addict and a partner, and yet the pain uh, keeps two people from really healing unless they can work through it. One more quote from Pema, really helpful. She says these words, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. Compassion is a relationship between equals. Only when we know our darkness well, present with the darkness of others, compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. In the course of healing among with a couple, it is absolutely imperative that each recognize their shared brokenness. When that happens, that's when we have discovered, I have experienced, healing begins to happen in a broken relationship where there's been infidelity and betrayal. So that's all about managing and stalking shame. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is that most of my couples that I work with would both agree that they have broken this together. There's not one that says, I am righteous and you are wrong. And they both want to help each other get better. And I don't know, Ken, if you've heard of my book, Help Her Heal, 
but it's an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal through empathy, through compassion, and through seeing life from the eyes of the other. And uh, we do a lot of mindfulness and a lot. Yeah. So I really love what you're talking about. It is at the root of good mental health as well as just good coping. Kim, I've got to thank you for sharing your wisdom. I I know that Earl got on the, the listserv and said, this is one of the best books ever. And so I'm going to remind our listening audience that this book is available on Amazon and also through Ken's bookstore. It is called Dare to be Average, Finding Brilliance in the Commonplace. And um, I just thank you so much for helping people to understand themselves better and to not ascribe to um, what they believe is the impossible because that stops them to really surrender to what is and move from there. Hey, Carol, it's been a, it's been a privilege uh, to be with you. Uh, I've enjoyed it very much. If what I say could be helpful, wonderful. I'm glad for the work that you're doing. I'm glad for how you're uh, able to touch so many lives. And uh, I encourage you to keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much. Are you going to be at ICAP this year? Yes, I'll be there for sure. Yeah, I'll see you okay, there. I'm going to look. I'm going to. I'm going to seek you out absolutely because Ken is a CSAT supervisor, so he has a lot of wisdom to bestow upon all of us. So, Ken, thank you so much, and I'll see you in April. Take care, Carol. Bye bye. Bye bye. So again, that was Ken Wells, and he obviously has done a great job. Uh, getting across how important it is to know who you are and to accept where you're at. Um, It kind of goes with what I always say, right? There's only going to be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach.